Our reading is taken from John, chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 liters. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Nice to see you. We really are an Anglican church, I can tell because we're filling up from the back. It's sort of almost tempting for me to come and preach from halfway back, but I don't think a camera could cope with that. Lovely to see you. Let's pray that God will speak to us. Father God, thank you for your love for each and every one of us. And we pray that you would open the scriptures to us today. Open our hearts to you. Make us sensitive to your presence. In Jesus' name. I'm going to talk this morning about how to put a smile on the face of God and also on our own faces too. Now the reading you just had is most likely very, very familiar to you. You'll have had lots of sermons, lots of talks about this, the very first miracle that's recorded of Jesus in a public place. And I have a question for you about it, or and using our imagination. And this is simply my question. Who do you think went home happiest that day? Who do you think went home with the biggest smile on their, on their face at the end of the time when Jesus turned water into wine? And it's not that easy to answer that because there must have been a lot of happy people that day. I mean, this wasn't just any old plonk that was served, was it? It wasn't uh, Chateau Neuf du Pape or Chateau Margot, it was Chateau Messiah. And one has to imagine that that was pretty out of this world. And then there was an enormous quantity of it. Uh, we're told 80 to 120 liters is the amount that was held in six of these huge containers. So there was a lot of wine 
sloshing around that day. There are some easy candidates for who would have gone home happy. The bride and the groom, one thinks. Their, their relatives, the friends who were invited and the gatecrashers. But my suggestion is that probably the person who went home with the biggest smile on their face was Jesus himself. Uh, why do I think that? Well, because in scripture, as in life, generosity and joy go hand in hand. Generosity and joy go hand in hand. In fact, you know, I, I've uh, heard of somebody, and, and I know this is true, um, who makes it a habit to go out when they're going out to eat in a restaurant and for the sheer fun of it, they pick another table in the restaurant and they ask one of the waiters and they say, when it comes to paying that table's bills, I'd like to pay it. And uh, they do it anonymously and the people who they um, pay for never know who it is, but they get such a kick out of it, such an amount of joy out of it, um, it's fun. And the reason I start this sermon like this is to say it's not necessary to take evasive action when I tell you that this talk is all about generosity because it's not painful to be generous. It's not painful to give. And that is my topic today and it will put a smile on your face and God's face. For many years, I shied away from addressing this topic from the pulpit. And I had a number of reasons why I did so. First of all, uh, in the family I grew up in, which were not Christian, um, we had this stereotype, this expectation, that if you ever went to church, which we generally thought would be a mistake anyway, but if you ever did, you'd find the one thing they were after was your money. In fact, you know, someone said, a lot of congregations sit like sheep waiting to be fleeced. And, 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 and in a sense, there was part of me that just did not want to reinforce that stereotype. And um, so I, I, that was one reason for keeping away from it. Secondly, just pretty obviously, in this country, when you talk about money, it gets personal very fast. And, and we kind of do a deviation from that topic because it is so private and personal. And probably, to be candid, there's a third reason I kept away from this topic. E even in my own walk with the Lord, it's because I was slightly frightened what I might discover if I looked into what Jesus had to say about money and stewardship. I just had this sixth sense that it might be incredibly challenging. But I myself was challenged just at this level by realizing that Jesus teaches on this subject, the subject of generosity, on money and stewardship, more than any other topic apart from the kingdom of God. In fact, when it comes to money, Jesus' interest rate is alarmingly high. It's a topic close to his heart. And I'm sure I'm on secure ground when I say that when he spoke about possessions and generosity, it really wasn't because he was trying to get people to put their hands in their pockets and get something out of them. It really was because he knew what was good for us, what was best for us. And once I realized that, I rather reversed uh, what I do in preaching on this subject of money. I think it ought to be on our syllabus as a regular thing, but not too regular. 
And one of the reasons, one of the reasons why I'm speaking about it today is because when I review the amount of sermons that I've given about stewardship and giving in the last year, I haven't. And so the, there's a, a credibility gap. It's unbalanced compared to what Jesus would have been talking about. But I also want to be very, very upfront with you and say I am talking about it because in a couple of weeks' time, we'll say we're going to have a gift day and I will be writing to everyone who thinks of St. Michael's as their spiritual home, setting out where we are financially and giving an opportunity to give. And, and it won't surprise you, in the last year, those of you who are very astute and on the ball who've been worshipping with us regularly, you will have noticed that we haven't taken an offering, physical offering, in church for over a year. And that might have led you to think, well, because maybe they don't need to in this church. And um, no, it isn't, it isn't, that's not the reason. You will see, of course, we, we need to meet our expenses. Of course, we've got projects that we want to get involved with. But what I want to set up this morning is not that. I would like your response to be an act of worship. Now, the chances are you have heard many talks about stewardship. And so this morning, what I want to do is share an idea which isn't a Rupert original. Um, if you nick someone else's material, I think the rules of the road is you should at least credit, give credit where credit is due. So the original concept behind this uh, talk I'm giving, it comes from a talk I heard from Bill Hybels of Chicago. And it's at least 16 years ago that I listened to a talk and he planted this idea and I'm sort of sharing it and uh, having adapted it. But I think it's quite intriguing. And he puts before us the idea that there are six levels or motivations, I prefer that probably, to giving. Six motivations. And we're going to discover that actually the driver behind our giving is actually our heart condition. And by the end of this talk, we'll recognize that more and more, I think. You could think of it as six rungs of a ladder. And the very first rung on this ladder, I could summarize as pay to play. Pay to play. And Bill Hybels tells a, a, a fascinating story how when he was starting his church, after he'd been going for a few months, um, a businessman, very kindly bus businessman, someone who was warm and friendly, invited Bill to meet him out for breakfast. And quite soon, the agenda was put on the table and the businessman said, look, I, I'm, not, I'm not a Christian, I'm not a believer, but I really am enjoying coming to your church and my wife loves it and the kids love it. And we're concerned for you because uh, we can see that it's a big enterprise and it must be costing you quite a bit. And um, we don't want your church to hit the buffers and for it to disappear. So I'm here to tell you how to run your church financially. And I'd just be grateful if you'd answer a few questions. And at this point, the, the man got out some paper and pen and a calculator. And he said, so how many people are coming who are grown-ups? And he writes that down. How many children are coming? And he writes that down. And how many have you got in your creche? And he writes that down. And what are your utility bills? And what, what's the rent? And after all these questions, he does some number crunching on his calculator. He said, well, Bill, this is what you need to do. You need to charge every adult X dollars every child for age seven upwards to 18 Y dollars and you've let the rest go free and at the end of the year you'll break even. 
And um, Bill Hybels calls this uh, the pay-to-play motive. And he says there's something good there. There's something good. He, he recognized that church costs money to run, and it does. A- and um, sometimes in this sort of setting, not America, some people um, have said to me, but hang on, Rupert, you're an Anglican church. Surely the Church of England maintains this church. Well, the answer to that is no, they don't. We are Church of England, but there's no crock of gold. In point of fact, St. Michael's helps maintain other churches within the Church of England. Or occasionally, a slight variation of this is people will say, well, there are people richer in the church than me. They can carry the load. Well, that isn't a godly way of thinking either, and it's also not true. We all carry it together. So... What this guy's got right is he sees for expenses. What he's got right is that he wants to contribute. But there are a few problems with this way of thinking about it. The first one is you won't find a single example in the Bible of people giving to God on this basis to cover the cost out of self-interest. So one could say this is the very lowest rung of the ladder and the lowest level of giving to a church. It probably is the most worthy giving that an unbeliever can aspire to, but it'll soon be bettered. And it's problematic because when a church relies on this motivation, it very quickly gets ugly. And I think it like disfigures a church. And I'll explain what I mean. You, you can tell this kind of church because they have thermometers outside. And, and someone said to me, that's a very good indicator of a church that is sick. Why it's problematic is because it's unworthy of God. God never says to us, if you don't contribute to me, I'm not interested in helping you. He never says, if you don't pay, I won't listen when you pray. That's just not on his heart. It's not godly. And if you want a negative illustration of this kind of um, motivation, I heard of a friend who was a minister in a country parish, and he said someone used to come and sit ostentatiously in the front row where he, from the pulpit, could see them. And when they started getting bored of their sermon, they would take from the coins that were on the front row and stacked up and put them in his pocket so that by the time the collection came, there was practically next to nothing to give. Or someone else who would actually admit even worse, don't go getting ideas, would write a check out and then rip it up and put it into the collection plate just to express their displeasure. Well, you know, that this is unworthy in any context, but it's unworthy in God's presence. But that is level one. But we'll leave that behind and move into level two, which is giving from a grateful heart giving from a grateful heart, a a thank offering, if you like. And this is a theme, actually, it runs all the way through Scripture. And so in Psalm 116, it says, what can I give back to God for all that he's given me? And in the Old Testament, you find it uh, very obviously after the Exodus, where the children of Israel are told to remember all that God has done for them and to rejoice in all the good things that the Lord has done. And out of their gratitude to give the first fruits of their possessions. And I I think um, we know this motivation in everyday life too, don't we? When people do something to us that we deeply appreciate, we want to express 
our thanks. Um, Rolling back the clock, I can remember when my children were very young, um, less than three years old, I seemed to be forever living in the doctor's surgery with one of my children. And we're a very kind doctor. And um, got to know his waiting room very well. And uh, one day he announced that his practice, which was NHS, was going to go private. He was, going to, he was setting up something completely different. And we got this letter in the post that said, um, I am changing the way I'm running my clinics, but I would love to keep, feel that you can keep coming uh, to my surgery. And I won't expect you to pay, and I shall soon forget who it is that I've written letters to like this. And we felt so, so grateful to him uh, for the generosity of what he was doing. And we just wanted him to know that. So every Christmas I can remember going around with a rather pathetic offering of a couple of bottles of wine just to say thank you. And it was just gratitude, that's all. It's a pathetic little illustration, but when it comes to God, that is at the heart of what we're doing in our stewardship. We're wanting him to know that we appreciate what he has done and what he is doing, isn't it? That's what drives our generosity. And there's a significant point that runs with this. It, there may be a time in your life when you worship in a church that is far from great. And even if that was the case, it would still be right out of a heart of gratitude to God from what he's given to continue in stewardship like this. So that is just level two. Now we're going to go to level three. And this is when we start giving out of obedience. Out of obedience. Obedience to God. Because a question will come into your heart at some point or other as a follower of Christ. The day will come perhaps when you're brave enough in the quietness of your own life to say, Lord, what would you have me give to you? you know, I can remember there used to be a, a phase when people went around with a, a little bracelet or a badge said, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Well, actually, scripture does answer this question. Because it seems that the base rate for giving in scripture to God is a tithe, one-tenth. And we do that out of obedience. Now, I found preaching about this over the years that a congregation more or less divides into two over this issue. There are some who come up to me at the end of a talk like this or write to me afterwards and say, it's just about time you spat this out. I can't see why you're so coy about it. It's a huge blessing to tithe. Ever since I've been doing it, I'm bear witness to how faithful God has been. And really, um, get on with it, Rupert. And then there's another uh, section of people that say, gulp. This is like an ask too far. You can't be serious. Well, I understand the gulp. But it is true, it is what God does expect of us and asks of us. And very often, the first move is just obedience. Did you notice, sure you did, in that story of the feast at, at Cana, that Mary says, do whatever he asks you. 
And there are so many areas of my life where the first response is, Rupert, for goodness sake, just do whatever he asks you. Don't wait till you feel like it or you'll never get anywhere. I mean, that's true of practically everything I do to trust, not, uh, not everything, but you know, prayer. There are days I don't feel like praying, but I pray because it's what Jesus asks of us. There are days when you don't feel like forgiving someone. In fact, you very rarely do ever feel like forgiving someone, but you're commanded to forgive someone. So as an act of will, you do, and so on and so forth. And it's exactly the same when it comes to this area of stewardship. It has to be remarkable and interesting that there's only one place in the whole of Scripture that we're told to put God to the test. And that is in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. And most people think the storehouse is your church where it's your spiritual home. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and test me in this, says the Lord. See if I won't throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing you won't have room enough for all. That is the challenge. That, that is the challenge. And it is challenging. Because for very many of us, we won't be able to tithe without cutting back our, life, our lifestyle choices to some extent. But that is what's at the heart of our worship, isn't it? There's a, an amazing little passage where King David in 2 Samuel wants to buy a field. And the king says, no, just let me give it to you. And King David says, no, I insist on paying you for it. I won't sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. And I think as we grow up in our Christian faith, we realize that actually sacrificial giving is an offering which is meaningful to God. Now, even if we stopped at this level, and we're not going to stop at this level, even if we stop at this rather mundane level of giving, just the tithe, then most churches would find they were enabled to do so much more than they already did. And uh, I commend it to you as a practice because I think it is spiritually healthy to do it. I think it will actually make sure that you are in charge of money rather than money controlling you. But I'm going to move on because there are a couple more levels to go. Well, level number four, you could call a free will offering or a grace gift. It's being open to the Lord, really, for promptings that he might give you as and when um, to be generous over and above your tithe. And this way we can be generous without robbing God. And if you want to biblical example I think the Macedonians give us that in 2 Corinthians where Paul says they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability and he urges them just as they excel in everything to excel in the gift of giving now you and I we can't respond to every single need that there is out there or every appeal and it wouldn't be right to do so but it would be good to keep a sensitive enough heart so that if God should speak to you you're responsive. And I was really thrilled that I got an email not so long ago from a couple in our congregation here at St. Michael's who, who just said for one reason or another, they'd been stirred up to realize quite how many people in the locality were being challenged financially and what could they do about it. And we were able to point them, and there is a very helpful leaflet 
there are some a number of local organizations that help the homeless and those struggling with food poverty and fuel poverty and they were able to give accordingly and i think that was this kind of giving it's a, it's a free will gift then moving up to level five there's giving which buys into and knowingly invests in kingdom enterprises and this is giving that is harnessed by a kind of spiritual vision and again i want to try and make it clear i'm not so much interested in the quantities here as the obedience here that um, i've seen great works of god literally great works of god enabled by small acts of obedience in this way have you ever wondered how jesus paid for his living expenses when he was alive obviously i don't know the answer fully um, i guess he, you know did he cash in the gold that he was given at his birth i have no idea um, but we are told in luke chapter 8 that Jesus traveled from one town and village to another and the 12 were with him and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, Mary, Joanna, Susanna and many others. And then this telling little sentence, these women were helping to support them out of their own means. Quite an investment, isn't it? And what was going on there? They, they had discerned that investing their money in this way was exactly what they wanted to do the right thing to do and in fact you could argue i probably would that it's the best invest investment you and i will ever make because we're supporting a work for all eternity someone said you can't take it with you but you can send it on ahead and, and i think this is like that this is like that in, in my previous church in, in cambridge we sat for many, many, many years in a building that wasn't fit for purpose. And we often had discussions about what should we do about this. And um, one day, an elderly lady in the congregation who was not rich, and she really, really was not rich, uh, she died and she left the um, proceeds of the sale of her house, which was about 100,000 pounds in those days. She left it to the church. And on the back of her legacy, we were able to pay the initial fees of a, of a feasibility study of what could happen in that church. And when we completed a 4.7 million pound project, I still like to think, well, it, the whole thing was initiated and founded and built on the generosity, the outstanding, amazing generosity of probably one of the poorest members of the congregation. Because there's no knowing what God can do when we're obedient to him. Just seeing, just thinking and seeing of the spiritual return of this kind of investment. And now I'm going to get to the last, the last level of giving. And it's just a gift of love. I say it's just a gift of love. I don't know a better level of giving. I think the, the cosmetic company that came up with the slogan, because you're worth it, hit gold. As I read the life of Jesus, 
over and over and over again, it becomes more and more clear to me that a lot of his life was excruciatingly painful. That he had opposition so much of his life. So often he speaks to a hostile crowd. And very often they're pretty animated in their opposition. And it really, frankly, if, if there was to be background music to most pages of most of the gospel, it would be very minor, in a very minor key. But just occasionally, into that kind of a gloom, if you like, just occasionally a shaft of light breaks through and Jesus is blessed and something wonderful happens to him or for him. And very often, generosity is at the heart of it. So, for example, the woman with the jar of expensive perfume, why, did, why didn't you give this to the poor? They complained. And she would have said, because I love him. And Jesus said of her, a very beautiful thing has happened. Or the widow who put in two tiny coins into the temple offering. And we're told, which is rather disturbing, that Jesus was looking intently at what everyone was giving. And he commends her because she gave everything that she had. And he was moved by that. It blessed him. Or after his death, when Joseph of Arimathea goes and asks for Jesus' body and gives his own family tomb for Jesus. We could come alongside any of those people and we could say, why did you do this? And they would say, love made me do it. I just had to express my love for God. I can't explain it, but joy filled my heart. And you know, that is the hidden narrative kept secret often of generous churches. That is the story of smiling churches. Love makes us do it. I think the happiest church I've ever worshipped in was in Ndola in Zambia, in the middle of a slum. And conditions in that slum were appalling, dreadful. Most people were living off less than $2 a day. You can't really imagine it unless you've been there. And yet, when it came to worship, I have never been in more joy-filled worship. And when it came to an offering, uh, people brought from what they'd grown in their gardens and put it at the front as an offering to the Lord with joy and dancing. It was an act of worship. Friends, in talking to you like this, um, I hope my prayer would be that God is just planting seeds in our hearts to say this is a subject which Jesus talks about lots and you can have liberty in it. You don't need to be worried about it. You don't need to be fearful. You don't need to put up the barricades. But if we'll let Jesus in here, he will bring as much light and freedom and joy into your house and this house as we could ever ask or want. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you that you speak the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So thank you, Lord Jesus, that you didn't shy away from talking about stewardship or generosity. Thank you that generosity lies in your heart. Thank you, you were forever giving of yourself. 
thank you, O God, that you so loved the world that you gave your one and only Son for us. And we pray that you'd see into our hearts. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd soften them and enable us to be generous towards you, Jesus. Not just with our money, but also with our time and our energy and our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.